0: The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, out of curiosity, who's uh, staying up on the reading schedule for Pilgrim's Progress? Oh, that's awesome! That is great! Did you see all those hands that went up? That was amazing! So... Do that again. So, everybody is staying up on the reading with Pilgrim's Progress. Raise your hand. All right. For those of you that aren't, look around and, 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 and beg the mercy and forgiveness of those that are doing the right thing. All right. Okay. So, you can have somebody read it to you. Okay. Well, very good. I like the. Is it dramatized? Oh, we used to listen to the dramatized versions of Book One and Book Two whenever we were on vacation, along, of course, with Adventures in Odyssey. So, all right. A good friend of mine over in um, the Reading area sent me this. He heard the lessons that we've done on Pilgrim's Progress and. He said, you mentioned uh, Ernie Riesinger last week. He said, um, he said I heard uh, Ernie teach on Pilgrim's Progress, and he sent me this. This is from uh, Ernie Riesinger, who's in heaven now. Facts about Pilgrim's Progress. Number one, without doubt, next to the Bible, Pilgrim's Progress has been used to bless more people than any other single book. Two, William Chalmers Burns, the first Presbyterian missionary to go to China, translated Pilgrim's Progress as a means of evangelism. Three, C.H. Spurgeon, who's known as the Prince of Preachers in the 1800s and whose sermons continue to be published around the world, read Pilgrim's Progress at least 100 times, and it permeated his sermons. Four, Pilgrim's Progress is the biblical message of salvation by grace. Number five, Pilgrim's Progress is pregnant with biblical truth. Spurgeon said you can prick John Bunyan anywhere for all his blood is bibline." (laughs) Number six, this is an interesting one. It is not fiction. It bathes and swims in Scripture. The more you know the Bible and the theology of the Bible, the more you will appreciate Pilgrim's Progress. Number seven, it is the life of the Christian traveling between two worlds. Number eight, it is the great doctrines of the Bible set forth in an experiential and illustrative manner. Number nine, it is as relevant today as when John Bunyan wrote it between 1675 and 84. And like the Bible, it's always relevant because it's about God, man, sin, Christ, salvation, life, death, heaven, and hell. Number 10, Pilgrim's Progress is better than any book on anthropology or psychology. Because most books on these subjects study man without God or the Bible. Now you can learn a lot about man without God or the Bible, but you can never get to his real problems. And therefore, you can't come up with correct answers. But Bunyan gives you a real insight into yourself and all other sinners. Number 11, the character in Pilgrim's Progress are appropriately named in order to teach practical truths about the variety of men in the world in which the Christian will come in contact with and have to deal with. Number 12, Pilgrim's Progress stands next to the Bible in sales and in translations. And when Riesinger wrote this, it had been translated into 198 languages. 13, where the Bible goes, we may say the pilgrim's progress will follow, And so then, of course, Daniel mentioned this, but I'll just read it again. He says, in the 1660s, Charles II, king of England, asked John Owen, the prince of the Puritans, why he went to hear the preaching of an uneducated tinker. The king was amazed that Owen, the most prominent preacher in England, would stoop to associate with a Baptist tinker. After all, there was quite a contrast between the two. Looking the king in the eye, Owen answered, May it please your majesty, could I possess the tinker's ability for preaching? I would willingly relinquish all of my learning. So, last week we dealt with worldly wise man, and just by way of review, what, what is worldly wise man's counsel to Christian. Okay, there's an easier way to get rid of your burden, right? So people that tell you to read the Bible, yeah, weak minds like take it seriously and that's trouble. But what 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 was the advice? Okay. Yes, but let's keep our characters Go to the town of Morality and meet with a Mr. Legality. And if he's not home, his son, Civility, with that simpering smile, will be able to help you as well. And, of course, um, Christian is persuaded. So he gets off of the path. By the way, that's important. He gets off of the path. And as he approaches, he, he hears that, All you got to do is just get up the mountain, and his house is the first one there. But as he gets to the bottom of that mountain, what happens? His burden gets heavier, and he starts to feel like he's going to die. The mountain is actually going to just come down on him. And then, of course, in God's merciful providence, evangelist shows up right evangelist saves the day and of course with uh, with some level of indignation wants to know what are you doing here and so evangelist points him back and uh, after giving him quite the lesson it's always interesting he doesn't he doesn't actually pull him out of that uh, dangerous space as he gives him the lesson right he wants him to hear the lessons on the dangers of legalism with the looming Mount Sinai right over his head, right? Makes a bigger impact that way, right? And so then um, Evangelist sends him on his way, and then it says, and this is where we, where we pick up, um, Christian heads off in haste to get back on the way to the wicked gate, but what's interesting is he does it in haste, but he also does it without stopping or even talking to anybody. Did you pick that up? Right? So why might Christian actually make such haste that he's not even going to stop and talk to anybody about his journey or about what he's doing? Why make haste back to the, to the way to the wicked gate? Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So there's like time to make up. Sure. Um, so he's going to try to double time it back to the straight uh, and narrow path, right? But there's other reasons why he's not going to talk to anybody. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is dangerous. <laughs> Last time I talked to somebody, I almost got crushed by a mountain right? And so he actually, what he does is he makes haste to get back into the way. He knows that the ground from there to back to the way is dangerous ground. And he knows the last time that he entered into conversation with somebody along the way, they got him off of the way. And so he goes, and then he finally gets to the wicket gate. And notice it's T, not D, okay? The wicket gate. That is the straight gate, the narrow gate. And as he arrives, his eye catches something, a sign that hangs over the wicket gate. And what does that sign say? Knock and it shall be opened. Matthew 7, 8. And so, what does Christians start doing? He starts knocking, right? By the way, this is the Christian taking God at his word, at his promise. You said knock and it'll be open? I'm gonna start knocking. And then, of course, Mr. Goodwill comes to the door. And it says that he's a grave man, okay? So think of uh, a serious guy. Dignified for sure, but a serious guy. Um, Maybe someone that, you could say was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Okay. So, Goodwill comes to the gate and he says, who's there? Right, that's the obvious question. And uh, where are you from? That's the next obvious question. And what do you want? That's the next obvious question, all right? And so, Christian's response is absolutely marvelous. So, if, if you identify as a poor, miserable sinner in need of the grace of God, Christian's response here at the wicked gate is absolutely heartwarming. He says, here is a poor, burdened sinner. I come from the city of destruction, but am going to Mount Zion that I may be delivered from the wrath to come. I would therefore, sir, since I am informed that this gate is the way thither, know if you are willing to let me in. And so Christian actually answers his question. So who are you? I'm a poor, burdened sinner. Where'd you come from? Came from the city of destruction. Why are you here? I need to get to Zion. Zion. I want to get relief from this, from the wrath to come. And somebody, evangelist, told me that if I came here, this would be the way. And then he says this, it's absolutely wonderful. He says, if you're willing. If you're willing. And at which point, Goodwill's response is, I'm willing with all my heart. I mean, it's just this beautiful picture, right? So you can imagine and, and remember, and we're going to hit on this a lot today because we're going to ask this question, is the wicked gate salvation? And so here's Christian, and he knows that he's just made an absolutely horrific mistake trying to go up to to uh, Mr. Legality in the town of morality, and he realizes that he doesn't have any claims to enter in through the wicked gate except the willingness of the gatekeeper. Absolutely beautiful. And I'm willing with all my heart, said he, and with that, he opened wide the gate. Now, Bunyan's marginal reading is, the gate will be opened to brokenhearted sinners. (laughs) Now, you you do know we're going to find some characters that are on the way that didn't go through the wicked gate, right? Okay, important to keep in mind. So I'm willing with all my heart, opens the gate. And um, now what happens next is kind of interesting because um, Mr. Goodwill grabs Christian and jerks him in through the door. Okay, now I assume that there's something going on where, where maybe Christian stood there even just for a second with his mouth wide open like, oh, I can't believe it. And Goodwill just reaches out and forcefully yanks him in. Now, it startles Christian, right? What'd you do that for? Okay. Now, a lot of the, the people that comment on Pilgrim's Progress say that there's, there's really two things um, at play that are illustrating the same truth. One is, the way, the way Christian gets into the wicked gate is by the strong arm of Mr. Goodwill. Okay, <laughs> all right? <laughs> so, good lesson, right? So, well, God's a gentleman. He always knocks. No, actually, he'll grab you by the nap of the neck and drag you in. Okay. <laughs> And thanks be to God for that, right? If I, if, if I waited for God to be just be polite and just pretty pleased, would you come in? I'd be standing there still, riddled with arrows. Because the other reason why Christian is jerked into the wicked gate is because, as he says, what'd you do that for? Mr. Goodwill says, well, you have to understand, there's a castle right there. And the captain of that castle is Beelzebub, and what he does is he waits for pilgrims to hesitate, to get in, and then shoot them with arrows. Yikes! All right. So this is this, by the way, is um, part of Bunyan's uh, perspective on on the, the perseverance of the saints. And so it's like, so what does Satan want to do right before you, right before you enter in through the wicked gate? He wants to kill you, <laughs> right? He wants to actually thwart you from getting in. Now, what's fascinating to me is, um, so, so Spurgeon has this um, wonderful book called Pictures from Pilgrim's Progress, all right? And as he's talking about this, he says, in this passage, Bunyan alludes to the fact that when souls are just upon the verge of salvation, they are usually assailed by the most violent temptations, okay? He says, that's that's the picture. And so then what Spurgeon does in his own uh, Spurgeon-esque way is he starts to talk about what some of those fiery darts could be, okay? Now, Bunyan doesn't, but Spurgeon does. And in a sense, Spurgeon does based on his own experience and perspective and as a pastor dealing with sinners who were seeking salvation. He says the most common one is this, the fiery arrow of the remembrance of our sins. The very idea of to have the enemy of our souls remind us of our sins, and to make us start to conclude, my sins are too great, right? Or I've sinned too many times. Or the crimson stain of my sin runs so deep, how could God ever forgive me, right? Spurgeon says, that's one he goes, says that he has another one too. Sometimes another satanic temptation strikes the sinner like a bolt shot from an ancient crossbow and it's this, it's too late for you to be saved. Oh, God's given you plenty of opportunities. You've squandered those opportunities. And because you've squandered those opportunities, don't you think now it's a little presumptuous of you to think that you can get in after squandering all of those opportunities? Frankly, it's just too late. I wonder if uh, any of these have been issues for us. Spurgeon at the end of that says, If a man be 90 years of age, and he cometh to Christ, he shall not be cast out. I, and if he were as old as Methuselah, and he were to come to Christ, the promise would still hold good. Spurgeon goes on, he says, Satan says, yes, yes. It may not be too late on account of your age, but you've resisted the Holy Spirit. You've stifled your conscience. You have frequently, when you were almost persuaded, go thy way for this time. When I have a more convenient season, I will sin for thee, which of course is um, Festus's words to Paul. And so, so here's Spurgeon surmising what some of those fiery darts are could have been, and so, so Christian is, is startled at first as he's jerked in through the wicked gate, but then as goodwill explains it to him, then these are the words, I rejoice and tremble. <laughs> I rejoice and tremble. You know, that is, uh, in a sense, um, that's the wonderful paradox of the Christian life, Right? Joy, joy unspeakable, but also fear and trembling, right? And those things are not mutually exclusive in the Christian life. And so there is Christian and he is safely inside. George Cheevers says, and this is, this is really important, he says, this undoubtedly is an incident drawn from Bunyan's own experience. For often, when he himself was standing at mercy's gate and knocking as for his life for entrance, he had been assaulted by these fiends. When he was praying, then especially would there sometimes come a fiery storm of darts of the wicked one so that often he uh, should think that he would die beneath them. In fact, if you read Bunyan's Grace Abounding, the Chief of Sinners, which is his autobiography, you will know that... that, um, The thoughts that would go through his head had actually convinced him that he had committed the unpardonable sin. Cheever says, all moments of decision are moments of danger. And when Satan, from his battlement, sees the soul knocking at the gate, then he says within himself, it is my last hope, my archers must destroy him now or never. And so, sometimes, just at the point of mercy, there is the greatest strife and danger." So, goodwill drags him in, Christian rejoices and trembles, and so then there is this conversation that starts to take place. And Christian, of course, tells him of evangelist, right? I mean, evangelist saves his life twice, all right? And um, then goodwill says, so how is it that, that you came alone? Why why are you all by yourself? I mean, shouldn't there be some town folk and some family with you? Christian's answer is is pretty interesting. He says, no one else saw the danger. No one else saw the danger. Not even my wife and my children. And so... Goodwill then asks the question, so did anybody from town try to persuade you to return? And Christian says, oh yeah, there were these two guys, obstinate and pliable, and of course obstinate just went back home, pliable went with me for a while, of course, um, but he fell into the slew of despond with me and then got back, got out on the side that was closer to his house, and he went back. And then this is... This is fascinating. Goodwill says of Pliable at that point, he says, Alas, poor man, is the celestial glory so small esteem with him that he counteth it not worth running the hazard of a few difficulties to obtain it? Right? Powerful. Now, it's at this point that, that Christian makes a confession. I'll just read it to you. This is, if you've got the green banner version, this is on page 24. So right after Goodwill says, he didn't esteem the glory to put up with a few trials and troubles. Christian says, truly, I have said the truth of pliable. And if I should also say all the truth of myself, it will appear that there is no betterment twixt him and myself. You know what he's saying. At the end of the day, there's no difference between him and me. Tis true, he went back to his own house, but I also turned aside to go into the way of death. Being persuaded thereto by the carnal arguments of one Mr. Worldly Wise Man, now, in a sense, what, what, what you get from Christian here is, is a genuine sense of humility, right? He, he doesn't say, oh, yeah, poor man, I, at least I esteemed the celestial glory way more than he did, right? Christian says, you know, I have to be honest, and that is, yeah, he went back home, but I turned out of the way. At that point, Mr. Goodwill Actually begins to inquire, and so Christian then tells him of Mr. Worldly Wiseman. And Christian says, "So I end up coming to this mountain, I thought it was going to fall on my head, and then Goodwill makes this comment, he says, "It's, it's been the death of many. It's a good thing you escaped." Christian, in turn says, "It was the mercy of God that evangelists came to me Now." At that point, so he's right inside the gate, right? He's safe inside the gate. Now at that point, now that he's made um, admission of him turning out of the way, trying to go up the hill, almost being crushed and killed by it, and, and Goodwill saying, yeah, lots of people die there. There's like heaps of bodies stacked up there underneath that mountain. Then it begins to dawn on Christian, and he says so am I fit to enter? Okay. Am I fit to enter? Basically, we'd say something like this. In light of my bad choices, <laughs> do I still get in? And goodwill welcomes Christian in with what has got to be just some of the most moving words. So good, this is what goodwill says. After he says, so do, do I still get in? right? Goodwill says, we make no objections against any, notwithstanding all that they have done before they come thither. Good news. No objections, regardless of what you've done up to the point of coming through this gate. (coughs) They are in no wise cast out, and therefore, good Christian, come a little way with me, and I will teach thee about the way thou must go. Look before thee. Dost thou see the narrow way? That is the way thou must go. It was cast up by the patriarchs, prophets, Christ, and his apostles, and it is as straight as a rule can make it. This is the way you must go. And so... Here he is, he's accepted, he's brought in. Of course, there's no objections, no matter what you've done, you actually come back. So at the end of the day, here's the interesting thing. What, what Christian understands when he thinks about pliable is that he understands, but for the grace of God, that was me. Right? No fundamental difference between the two. Goodwill actually knows a little better. And that is that it was the grace of God that got him to that place, okay. and so now Goodwill explains this: the straight and narrow way that leads to life, and um, <laughs> it is. Um, oh, can I see your copy here? Oh, never mind. I got it. I copied it. I like this one. Um, so, Christian or Christian wants to know. So you say it's as straight as a rule can make it. This is what I would ask. I'm directionally challenged. Is it possible to get lost on that way? (laughs) Right? Right? I forget where Ariel and I were, but it was like the worst signage ever, right? And you were thinking, you know, Seriously, just a bunch of hillbillies put these signs together because they they're not telling me where to go. Everybody knows you turn left by the next garbage can. That's the way they would say it. But as far, you know, so I'm like paranoid to get lost and, um, and, and have been lost before. And uh, one time we were up in Oregon and I tried to take a shortcut and it was really late and my kids were in the back seat, a little worried. And uh, Alex asked, he says, uh, Daddy, um, are there people that get lost that never get found again? Me being a sensitive dad, I said, of course, it happens all the time. <laughs> so, <laughs> Christian wants to know, he says, straight? This is from the, the, that version. You mean to tell me there are no turns or bends, no detours in the way, by which a stranger may lose his way? And then, this, this is goodwill. He says, oh, yes, There are many side paths that connect to this narrow way, but they're crooked and wide. You must distinguish the right way from the wrong by paying attention to which is straight and narrow. All right. And so now he's going to be on his way. And um, he has one more question. I mean, this man has been so helpful, so kind. I have one more question. Can you help me with this burden on my back? Goodwill's answer is you need to endure it just a little while more until you get to the place of deliverance. There, it will fall off your back all by itself. Bunyan's marginal note, there's no deliverance from the guilt and burden of sin, but by the death and blood of Christ. All right, so in uh, Bunyan's story... You have Mr. Goodwill, who is the gatekeeper. He also appears in book two. He's just simply called the keeper. And notice his name is Goodwill. Now, I would remind you that Bunyan was not, would not have been using the ESV. Okay, He'd have been using the King James Bible. And when you think of the name Goodwill... What comes to mind is Luke chapter 2 and verse 14, glory to God in the highest, right? This is at the Advent. On earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Okay? You also have another clue as to who Bunyan is identifying as Mr. Goodwill. He's the gatekeeper. You have to enter through him. And, of course, we have this in John chapter 2. So let me just read this to you. John chapter 10, verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. We're going to meet some thieves and robbers a little later. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To To him the doorkeeper opens And the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out, and find pasture. And so, I think it's a pretty good, uh, safe guess to look at the gatekeeper, representing, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, the next big question, and this is a question that is always brought up, um, Johnny's brought it up with me at least 18 times since just last Sunday. (laughs) And that is... So was Christian saved at the wicked gate or is he saved at the place of deliverance when he comes to the cross and the empty tomb and his burden falls away? So let me just say that this this question gets asked all the time. And so I want to make uh, seven observations that I think help us sort of understand Bunyan's view, all right? First, vitally important, Bunyan is writing this from his own experience, all right? You can't lose sight of that as you read Pilgrim's Progress. This is Bunyan writing through the lens of autobiography, okay? And so, the thing about Bunyan, and you can read all about his his own conversion, three to four years under deep conviction before he has any peace, all right? Um, and and what, what you understand is that when you start to believe that salvation is the work of God, then the realities of the new birth and conversion are not always nice, neat packages where you can put a date in the front of your Bible and say, on this day I entered into the uh, in, into the way of life, right? Sometimes you can, but sometimes you can't. And so that's the first observation. Just realize this is reflecting Bunyan's experience. He's not, he's not giving, in a sense, some sort of theological treatise on the relationship between the new birth and entering into salvation. The second observation is this. The experience at the wicket gate comes down to Christians appeal, I'm a burdened sinner on my way to Zion to escape the wrath to come. Goodwill's response, he gladly welcomes him in. And that marginal note that we've already referred to actually indicates, at least to me, that this is, in the story, Christian's conversion. Now, um, let me see here. So Bunyan preached a sermon, and actually a couple of years before he writes Pilgrim's Progress. And the sermon is called The Straight Gate, it's in his works, Volume 1, And he says this, he says, I read in the scriptures of two gates or doors through which they that go to heaven must enter. There is the door of faith, the door which the grace of God hath opened to the Gentiles. This door is Jesus Christ, as also himself doth testify, saying, I am the door. By this door, men enter into God's favor and mercy and find forgiveness through faith in his blood. And live in the hope of eternal life, and therefore himself also said, <clears throat> "I am the door by me; if anyone may enter, he shall be saved. that is receive to mercy, inherit eternal life, but there 's another door gate, and that is the passage into the very into very heaven itself, which is entrance into the celestial city and so I would say that if you if you take those component parts of of Christian at the gate with goodwill, with the questions, the responses, and then, in a sense, uh, Bunyan's own sermon on the straight gate. It looks like the experience at the wicket gate is um, uh, Christian's salvation. There's a, another reason why I think that's true, and I, I, I learned this from Barry Horner who uh, just recently went to be with the Lord, but was a Bunyan scholar for many years, he pointed out that the very next thing that happens once Christian goes through the wicked gate is what? What's that? Yeah, but after, after he's in, and, and now Goodwill's gonna send him on his way, what's the very next thing that happens? He goes to Interpreter's house. He goes to Interpreter's House, and Daniel has Interpreter's House. Okay? One of the things that he's going to learn as he goes into in Interpreter's House is actually the role and the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the, of the believer. Okay? And so, um, Barry Horner says, it wouldn't make any sense to have Christian go through the wicket gate and then instruct him about the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian if he wasn't a Christian at that point, okay? Number four, the fourth observation, other illegitimate pilgrims come up some other way, okay? The illegitimate pilgrims that will meet all end up being hypocrites in one way or another, Right? We're going to see that in all of the characters. They're going to end up being hypocrites or false professors one way or the other. Why? Because they didn't come in through the wicked gate. They climbed up. In fact, <laughs> Christian's going to say, how did you get here? Did you go through the wicked gate? And the guy said, no, I found a shortcut. I jumped over the wall. Okay. Number five, and this to me is, is most persuasive. So you start asking, so what is The Wicked gay? Well, lo and behold, we have a book two. All right? And the journey is going to be similar but very different. So by the way, book two is every bit as awesome as book one. Okay? And book two, I think, ends up having uh, more creative characters than book one, which is pretty amazing when you think of how creative book one is. But it is the story of Christian's wife, Christiana, her four boys, and their house servant, Mercy. All right? So guess what they all have to do? They have to go through the wicked gate. So, if you have this, uh, the authorized version, if you look on page, I think, I hope I got this from the authorized version, So Mercy actually struggles to get through. uh, uh, Christian and the boys go through. And so then it says, um, at the bottom of the the page, it says, Then he, this is Goodwill, took her by the hand and led her gently in. Different than, than Christian, by the way, right? Okay. Okay. That says 958, but so we'll go with your clock. (laughs) I pray. Oh, so, yeah. So then he took her by the hand, led her gently in and said, I pray for all them that believe on me by what means soever they come unto me. Then he said to those that stood by, fetch something and give it to mercy to smell, smelling salts, therefore to stay her fainting. So they fetched her a bundle of myrrh and while after she was revived. Now, and now was Christiana and her boys and Mercy received of the Lord at the head of the way, which is the wicked gate, and spoke kindly unto him. Then they said further unto him, We are sorry for our sins and beg our Lord his pardon and further information what we must do. I grant Pardon, said he, by word and deed, by word in the promise of forgiveness, by deed in the way I obtained it, take the first from my lips with a kiss, and the other as it shall be revealed. So very clearly, when Christiana and the boys and Mercy go through the wicked gate, they ask for pardon, pardon is granted. All right, and so here ends up being the big question. So if Christian is converted at the wicked gate, all right, why does his burden stay on so long? Okay, so again, you have to remember, this is autobiographical. Uh, Bunyan is not giving us some sort of sacred order of salvation. Bunyan's conversion, by the way, was incredibly different from Spurgeon's, okay? Um, In fact, uh, you could describe Bunyan's conversion as a torturous and complicated conversion. Now, Spurgeon didn't necessarily like this part, okay, of actually having Christian enter the wicked gate and that be conversion, and then him not lose his burden until he gets to the place of deliverance. In fact, there's a hilarious story that Spurgeon gives in a a sermon. I'll just read it to you because it's Spurgeon. He says, by the way, let let me tell you a little story about Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I'm a great lover of John Bunyan, but I do not believe him infallible. And the other day, I met with a story about him, which I think is a very good one. There was a wise young man, so he thought. Quote, if I'm to be a missionary, there's no need for me to transport myself far away from home. I may as well be a missionary in Edinburgh. Well, this young man started and determined to speak to the first person he met. And he met one of those old fishwives. Those of us who have seen them can never forget them. They're extraordinary women indeed. So stepping up to her, he said, here you are coming along with your burden on your back because she's a fish woman. Let me ask you if you've got another burden, a spiritual burden. What, she asked. If I had a Scottish accent, this would be so much better. What, she asked, do you mean that burden in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress? Because if you do, young man, I got rid of mine many years ago, probably before you were born. But I went about it a better way than Pilgrim did. (laughs) The evangelist that John Bunyan talks about was one of your parsons that do not preach the gospel. For he said, "Keep that light in thine eye and run to the wicket gate." Why, man alive! That was not the place for him to run to. He should have said, "Do you see that cross? Run there at once!" But instead of that, he sent the poor pilgrim to the wicket gate first. And as such, he got by do- and as such as such good he got by going there. He got tumbling into the slough and was likely to have been killed by it. Did not you, the young man asked, go through any slew of despond? She says, yes, I did. But I found it a great deal easier going through it without the burden on my back. <laughs> so Spurgeon says, if, if Bunyan meant to show what usually happens, he was right. But if he meant to show what ought to have happened, he was wrong we must not say to the sinner, now sinner, if thou wilt be saved, go to the baptismal pool, go to the wicket gate, go to the church, do this, do that. No, the cross should be right in front of the wicket gate and we should say to the sinner, throw thyself down there and there thou shalt be safe. Okay? And so that is um, Spurgeon's uh, opinion. Now, let me just say that... Um, I sympathize with Spurgeon, but I'm not altogether together on, on, on the same page as Spurgeon. Uh, to say that the evangelist gives him uh, bad advice, telling him to go to the wicket gate, I think is, um, is sort of silly. But here's, here's the point, is that if entering the wicket gate is, is conversion, okay? what Bunyan's illustrating by his own life is that a person may truly be on the way that leads to life and yet not have assurance and peace with God yet. Now, this is a little hard for us as as evangelicals in the 21st century because what we do is we equate faith with assurance. In other words, we equate believing in Christ with being fully assured that your sins are forgiven, okay? And I want to say that on the one hand, a person who has faith should have assurance, but a person may have genuine faith and actually lack assurance, okay? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but one of the common experiences for a person who comes to Christ is to begin to battle with the idea of whether I've truly been saved. You come to Christ, maybe as a kid, maybe as an adult, and um, you find old sins that creep back up, and one of the things that you might ask yourself is, If I was a Christian, how could I do that? Have you ever asked yourself that? If I was a Christian, how could I do that? If I was a Christian, how could I say that? If I was a Christian, how could I think that? And then, of course, what we start doing is we start doubting that we're Christians at all. And so Bunyan is going to have a little stretch where he goes from entering into that wicked gate until he finds deliverance. In other words, I see the cross and the empty sepulcher not as his conversion, but where he receives a full assurance of faith. Now, I might be wrong. Um, I don't think I am, but if I thought I was wrong, I'd think something different. All right? Um, but here's, here's, here's an important thing, and that is that um, in, in one sense, assurance is absolutely vital for the Christian life. Okay? But there are many of God's genuine sheep who may lack it for a while. Okay. And so, maybe that's you. Maybe there's a sense where you think, you know, I said I've been a Christian for all these years. I don't see a whole lot of grace in my life. I don't see a whole lot of, of fruit in my life. And it may actually cause you to wonder, Am I really one of His? And here's the best advice that I could give you. Run to the place of deliverance. Run to the cross and to the empty tomb. Remember that there is a fountain opened for sin and uncleanness. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Does God want his children to have a full assurance of faith? Yes. I would to God that we were all like Christiana. Right? But sometimes we're not. But it's the place of deliverance where God seals afresh to us the assurance of the forgiveness of our sins and the hope of eternal life. All right? Okay, we have one minute. Any questions? Oh, according to that, uh, the clock that went off uh, in, the, in the thing, I have four minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, uh, Paul's thorn in the flesh was, uh, has been greatly debated, and, of course, the smartest scholars have identified the thorn in Paul's flesh as his mother-in-law, but no. <laughs> I think that's. I think it's a little different, but I don't. I don't see the thorn in the flesh as, as a burden of, of sin. So, Chad. Yeah. So so there are there are a lot of different characters that you meet in book two, and they um, they in a sense in a sense you could argue book two is uh, is a little more. Uh, theological through the multiplication of characters, all right? For instance, you have a guy named Great Heart. I love Great Heart, all right? But he fills out the story in a way, right? So, all right, one minute left. Going, going, gone, all right, well, let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you that you save us by grace and grace alone, through Christ and Christ alone. And Father, we ask that, um, that, that you would teach us so many wonderful lessons through this, uh, this best of stories. And we pray, Father, even this morning for those that might be struggling with assurance. We pray that even today that they would find their way quickly to that place of deliverance where the burden rolls off of their back. And so, Father, we we ask for your help in the hour to come. We pray that we'd worship you in spirit and truth. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.